If you've been looking for a comprehensive Bible school curriculum that explores redemptive realities in Jesus Christ grounded in the Word of God, look no further. The goal of this podcast is to spread the life-transforming Word of God throughout the world for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ in what Jesus has accomplished for us through His death, burial, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of God the Father. There's such an untapped potential for Christians to enter into their glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. Together we will discover what Jesus has done for us by providing such a great salvation and how to appropriate the promises of God in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Each podcast season will cover one of the books that I have compiled over the years. You can find a complete listing of my Christian education material on my website at www.wordinspire.com. You're welcome to download these ebooks for free in PDF format for your own personal or ministry use. So let's explore these biblical truths and principles together that will absolutely transform our lives. God bless. Welcome to the Word of Life study series, The Authority of the Believer. Any authority is only as good as the power that backs it up. In this second episode, we will explore the fundamentals of what backs our authority in Jesus Christ. What Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection paid the price for our glorious redemption from sin and death. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father, victorious and triumphant over the kingdom of darkness. Let's first talk about the blood covenant. We need to realize and lay a foundation concerning the significance of blood covenant, the basis by which God and the ancient civilizations entered into agreement with one another. However, if you go to certain parts of the world, the practice of covenants in the blood are still as active as it was thousands of years ago. To our Western mindset, the subject of blood covenant may conjure up images of barbaric primitives or aboriginal practices of ignorant peoples. Yet the whole concept of covenant was established by God himself as a solemn legal contract or agreement. Even today, we practice many forms of covenant in our society and do not even realize it. I'm absolutely convinced that the subject of blood covenant is one of the most important and misunderstood subjects in the Bible. When the child of God fully grasps in his or her spirit the ramifications of these powerful truths, all things truly become possible to them who believe, as Jesus said in Mark chapter 9 verse 23. The Bible is divided into two divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word testament comes from the Latin word testamentum. The more proper name for these two divisions, however, is covenant. So the Bible really is the story of an old covenant and a new covenant. Now in the Bible, the word covenant 
means a binding agreement between two parties. The Hebrew word for covenant is berith. The Greek word is diakimim. It actually means to cut covenant. By definition, it is an agreement to cut a covenant by the shedding of blood and walking between pieces of flesh. So the two divisions in the Bible are about an old blood covenant and a new blood covenant. A blood covenant between two parties is the closest, the most enduring, the most solemn, the most sacred of all contracts. The first covenant recorded in the Bible was between God and Adam and Eve, when an animal was slain and its skin used as a covering for them in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Job had a covenant with God, a life-keeping covenant. When he finally got his mind on his covenant instead of his problems, he was delivered. We can't get anything from God with self-pity, which is really selfishness in manifestation. God cut the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. The subject of blood covenant is huge in the Bible. Without it, there would be no salvation for mankind, period. This subject is quite pertinent in the authority of the believer because of the sacredness that the blood covenant brings to God's word. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Luke chapter 21 verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The name of Jesus is backed by the blood of the new covenant and can never fail. A covenant of blood or the covenant of strong friendship, for example, Abraham through the blood covenant became the friend of God. The covenant God cut with Abraham was a covenant of strong friendship. But the covenant Jesus cut on our behalf was a covenant of adoption into the family of God, a much stronger and enduring covenant relationship. So what are some reasons people enter into covenant? One would be protection. A covenant partner is bound to come to your aid when in trouble. Second reason would be provision. What is yours is mine and what is mine is yours. Posterity. Descendants are covered and benefit from the relationship. And finally, relationship. A deep love, devotion, and respect for each other. These are common reasons to enter into a covenant. The blood covenant is very sacred. It is the most sacred covenant that mankind has ever known or has ever adhered to. Dr. Livingstone and Mr. Stanley were in Africa for many years as missionaries. And in all that time, they never heard of a covenant being broken. Many Christians who are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit do not realize that they have a covenant with God. We have a covenant with God, and it's a blood covenant. God used the vehicle of blood because of its sacredness. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The blood is the sign of what is sacred. Blood is not what makes the covenant sacred. The sacred thing is in the covenant itself are the words, are the most sacred things that exist. The power of life and death are in the tongue. God and his word are one. The universe was created and is governed by the word of God. Words are eternal, and every word that is spoken on earth is recorded in heaven and written in books. Jesus said, every idle word that is spoken, we will give it an account. By our words, we are saved or condemned. We reap what we sow. Words are holy. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, But I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. 
The word of the living contract is a contract that can be interpreted only one way. Lawyers spend hours choosing words that would describe and explain the contract so that it, it is not interpreted incorrectly. The Bible is a covenant contract, both old and new, sacred and legal in the court of heaven. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. We will find throughout the scriptures that God never did anything without saying it first. God is a faith God. His kingdom operates on faith principles. The source of God's power is found in in the word of his power. God wants us to be bold, not arrogant, but confident in him that he will honor his covenant. When we boldly declare of the devil to get out of our lives, provided we're walking in love, according to John chapter 14, verse 12, he must obey. God will see to it. God wants us to put him in remembrance and declare the stipulations of the new covenant so he can legally release his power in the earth and in the affairs of mankind. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 26, put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Authority given to human beings on this earth. Remember back in Genesis, it was to man that God had given authority to rule over his creation. Jesus put it this way, the devil was not created as part of God's redesign of earth and introduction of mankind into this world. Satan was an outsider, an alien wanting in, a thief and a robber, but climbs in by some other way, Jesus said. Through the serpent and deceit, he tricked Adam and Eve to give over the keys to the man's dominion in the earth. Satan's objective was to steal man from God as a way of getting back at God. Satan wanted to rule again and set up his kingdom of darkness and dominate mankind. But Jesus became a man, born into this world through the virgin birth. Jesus is the man who enters by the gate and is the shepherd of his sheep. John chapter 10 verse 1, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. In order for God or the devil to exert influence upon the earth, it must be done through people. This is why God the Son became the Son of Man, in Luke chapter 5, verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. In John chapter 5, verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. It was originally through the vehicle of covenant that paved the way legally for God to send his son to be the savior of the world. That covenant I speak of was between God and Abraham. There's only one way to find out Abraham's commitment to the covenant. That was to test Abraham with which was most dear to him, his only son Isaac. All over the world, men in blood covenant were willing to give what was the most dear to them. Devotees of pagan gods would sacrifice their firstborn child. Unfortunately, this was a common practice. However, this was something the Lord never required of his people to do. 
And you can read that in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 29, and Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. Jeremiah 19, verse 5 states that they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it ever enter my mind. Yet in Abraham's case, God tested him with this very thing, to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. However, God would never let Abraham go through with this act. But there is something absolutely huge we must understand about this event. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, Some time later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham arises early the next morning to begin his three-day journey toward the, the mountain at a city called Salem, later to be called Jerusalem. This journey is described in Genesis chapter 22. On the third day of the journey, God points out Mount Moriah, where Isaac was to be sacrificed. Isaac was as good as dead in Abraham's heart. Many scholars believe that Mount Moriah is the same location where Jesus was crucified. If Abraham was would be willing to offer his son, then God in turn would offer his according to the covenant. That would make it legal for Jesus to come to earth as our Savior. Notice the faith statement that Abraham makes in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, stating that Abraham and Isaac would return back together. Abraham believed that even if God did take Isaac, he would resurrect him to be the firstborn of the covenant children God had promised Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who has received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, as he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went along together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went up together. In John chapter 1 verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Abraham builds the altar and places Isaac on it. Just as he was about to make the sacrifice and take his own son's life, God intervenes and sends an angel to stop him. Interesting that Isaac was willing to be sacrificed. He could have overpowered his father, but didn't. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. 
Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Isaac symbolizes humanity in that we deserve to die for our sin. However, Jesus is the Lamb of God that God has provided as our substitute. To take our place upon the altar of sacrifice and tasted death for us so we could receive eternal life. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. However, the huge revelation here is that through Abraham's obedience to willingly offer his son as a sacrifice, it made it legal for God the Father to do the same and send his only son, Jesus, into the world as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. But now Jesus, who appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Remember, Abraham had a covenant with God. Through his willingness to offer his son, God was able to reciprocate and offer his son, Jesus. Satan could not challenge this. It was perfectly legal in the court of heaven. However, unlike Isaac, God the Father allowed Jesus to be sacrificed for us and became a burnt offering for us. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth as our ultimate substitute. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 Once the claims of justice were satisfied and the penalty of sin atoned for, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his own right hand, according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 and chapter 4 verse 8. Jesus Christ is that perfect God-man. The Bible declares that this was decided on before the foundations of the world. And we were there when the covenant was cut because as our creator, we were in him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. In God's own time, as he remembered the covenant that he had made with himself from the beginning, He came to earth as one of us, flesh and blood and bones. He was born of the seed of the woman, a virgin. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. He was born of the seed of the woman, not of man, so that the blood flowing through his veins would not be contaminated by Adam's sinful nature. He didn't carry the deadly blood disease passed on by Adam called the sinful nature in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. As God... He was perfectly holy and righteous, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And he prepared for himself a body, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. It was a body that would not know sin, as we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Therefore, the blood in that body was spotless and without blemish, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. So the pre-existing eternal Christ, the Son of God, exchanged names with us and became Jesus, the Son of Man, as the representative for all mankind. He called himself the Son of Man to identify himself with all mankind. For 33 years, he lived a perfect life in order to be the once-for-all perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world for every human being. 
So Jesus actually cuts covenant. During the covenant ceremony, Jesus gathered his disciples together to participate in the covenant meal of bread and wine. After the meal, Jesus went out and left a memorial to the covenant. He planted a tree, which is the cross, and poured out blood on it. But it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It was his own blood. And it wasn't just a little bit. He wasn't just a little nick in his wrist. It was all the blood poured out at the foot of the cross. The blood-stained tree that stands forever as a memorial to this new covenant. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith he might receive the promise of the Spirit. The Lamb of God, slain from the foundations of the world, cut covenant for all mankind, and we were there. We were crucified with him, according to Galatians 2 verse 20, because we were in him as our creator. He took our robe of self-righteousness, which is like filthy rags in Isaiah 64 verse 6. He took our own nature, that satanic sin nature, and took on all our liabilities, which are the sins of all mankind. They were all placed upon Jesus. All of our spiritual leprosy, that deadly blood disease we carry, was put on him. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, according to Isaiah 53, verse 6, and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. In John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. It was necessary for God to do this because the sin nature within each of us separates us from God. All of us have sinned and come short of God's glory according to Romans chapter 3 verse 23. The penalty of our sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. We all know this to be true, which is why we were afraid of God. Jesus took all of this on himself at the cross as our substitute. He took the rap, our punishment, for our spiritual crimes. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, and that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Let's now look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember in the Garden of Eden, The declaration God had made just after Adam and Eve had sinned, it was a prophetic statement concerning the undoing of Satan and his power over mankind and his ultimate demise. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. What Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection was the fulfillment of this promise of deliverance freedom, restoration, and reconciliation for all mankind. 
1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It was at the cross that God the Father nailed not only our sin, but our former sin-spiritual nature. When Christ died on the cross, so did we. In the mind of God, we were identified with Christ. As a result, we are as dead to sin today as Jesus is. Sin has as much power and dominion over our lives as it does on Jesus, which is none. What does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, it states, But now Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In John chapter 1, verse 29, I love this scripture. The next day, Jesus, coming to John, said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Psalms 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. The sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The good news is that Jesus bore our punishment for sins as our substitute so we would not have to. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves of sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, we count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 6. The term, the old self, is referring to our old satanic, sinful nature, which was crucified with Jesus. Through the cross, God the Father put our sinful nature, our old spiritual nature, to death. However, our physical body still has the sinful nature in it. But at least now, with our spirit nature reborn, into the image and likeness of God, we can keep our body under subjection to our spirit. In other words, through the cross, we don't have to be ruled by our body anymore. What the devil had accomplished in the garden by putting man to death through sin, Jesus has destroyed through the cross and the resurrection from the dead. In 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that were against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. God nailed our old sinful spiritual nature to the cross of Jesus. Hallelujah. Just take a moment and meditate on the reality of this fact, that we have already died to sin. When we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior into our life, we were born again. One cannot be born again unless he or she dies first. 
Certainly, the residual effects of that old sinful nature in our spirits had possibly corrupted our minds for years. But thank God, through the washing of the water of the word, we can renew our minds over time. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 5, verse 26, and James chapter 1, verse 21. Unfortunately, our physical bodies will not be redeemed until the catching away of the church or the rapture. That's stated in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. I like what it said here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idultery. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with his practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. The you in the above scripture is referring to the spirit man, the real you. The old sinful nature is dead. I have the life and nature of God in my spirit. That's called eternal life. I am identified with Christ. Just as Jesus experienced a spiritual resurrection, so have we. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, very famous scripture, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we were once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Christ, we died to many things, particularly in worldly lusts, our own selfish ambitions, motives, and fleshly nature, to sin and its effect upon our lives. And on and on the list goes. Keep in mind, our separation from sin was an instantaneous event when we were first born again, but is also progressive process throughout our lives on earth. Spiritually, we are free from sin now, but our minds are being renewed throughout our lifetime. And in the future, as Christians, we will all receive new glorified bodies at the resurrection. At any rate, according to verse 16, we are to see ourselves and other believers not from a worldly point of view, what we would what we were like without Christ, but who we are now in Christ Jesus dead to sin, the sinful nature. As we learn to walk in that reality by God's grace and our faith, the results of sin are eliminated from our lives. Understanding redemption is key to understanding authority. To fully appreciate and operate in the authority that we have in Christ Jesus, we must first have a firm foundation on understanding of the glorious redemption that was bought and paid for on our behalf by the Lord Jesus Christ. The subject of redemption covers what we have been redeemed from and what we have been redeemed to. To redeem something means to buy back something that was once yours. We were created by God, and in the beginning, our life belonged to God. When we were conceived in our mother's womb, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, how much more should we submit to our Heavenly Father, the Father of our spirits, and live? In Romans 7, verse 9, it says, Once I was 
alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. However, when we reached the age of accountability, we had our own personal Garden of Eden experience. Each one of us made a choice to sin and do wrong. At that moment in time, we lost our innocence, lost our connection with God, and became subservient to Satan as our new master. We were all created by God and originally belonged to Him, but when we made that fatal choice to sin and exercised our free will, we died spiritually and became a child of the devil. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By choosing to sin, we became the servants of sin, took on a new spiritual nature from our new spiritual father called the devil. We became subject to the dominion and authority of the kingdom of darkness. We were, in essence, kidnapped by Satan, thrown into a spiritual jail of sin, sickness, and oppression. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin which leads to death or to obedience which leads to righteousness? In 1 John 3.10, it says, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Remember that the word redemption means to buy back something that was once ours. We originally belonged to God. We had to buy, he had to buy us back from Satan through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been delivered from the authority of darkness, taken out of the control and dominion of darkness. Satan is not our Lord or Master anymore. Jesus now is our Lord and Master. Hallelujah. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you receive from God? You're not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You see, the key to Satan's authority over the lives of people has always been sin. Sin is Satan's territory. All who sin fall under his jurisdiction and power to kill, steal, and destroy. When sin is taken away or removed from the equation, Satan's authority over people's lives is automatically removed. Legally, without sin, Satan has no right to oppress a person's life. That is why Jesus came. His primary mission was to take care of the whole sin issue. Sin is what gives people 
over to the authority of the devil. Jesus took that authority away from Satan by taking away our sins. Sins cannot dominate us anymore. Sin, Satan, and the curse are synonymous terms. Praise God we have been redeemed from it all. Ignorance on this subject unconsciously gives authority over to the devil to dominate us. Until we know we are free, we will never act like we are free. Christians who still live under the bondages of the world have not found out that they are free in Christ, or they could only have a head knowledge of it, but still they don't believe it in their spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's not just acknowledging we are free. It's knowing it in our spirit, having a personal revelation of it. Building the word of God in our heart brings revelation knowledge. Continuing in God's word concerning our glorious redemption develops these truths in our spirit, and that's what makes us free. John chapter 8 verse 31 in the Amplified. So Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, hold fast to my teachings, and live in accordance with them. You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. For us to walk consistently in the realm of authority and dominion over the powers of darkness, we first must know we have been delivered from sin and live our Christian lives without it dominating us anymore. I'm not suggesting that we have to to live perfect, sinless lives first before we can exercise our God-given authority over the devil. We will make mistakes in this life with our unredeemed bodies that still have the sinful nature in it and our minds that need constantly to be renewed with the word of God. That's why we have 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. However, if we find ourselves continually living defeated Christian lives with habits and strongholds holding us in bondage, We will never reach our full potential, God's highest and best will for our lives. We have to learn what it means to be holy, sanctified, to to be set apart in our lives unto God. The systematic lifestyle of crucifying the flesh and living in obedience to God's word. To walk in love by obeying God's commands. By His grace and through our faith in God's word will make this a reality. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some are for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, 
He will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good. To be sanctified simply means to be set apart, to set something apart for a holy use or purpose. We have already been made holy in Christ before God through the new birth. However, being holy positionally before God in Jesus in these verses means living out that new holy nature in our lives means to be separate, means to be consecrated and dedicated unto him. What God does for us in Christ when we receive the gift of eternal life is a gift of God's grace received instantaneously. We cannot add to or improve on these new creation realities, and they'll be with us for eternity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. By God's grace and through our faith in, in the word, We release the power of God in our lives to live out those eternal attributes for our reborn spiritual nature, to walk as Jesus did according to 1 John 2, verse 6. I wish this life of obedience was automatic, but it requires deliberate choices of obedience on behalf of the believer. No, we don't get it right the first time, the second time, or even the third time. We must keep on going to the throne of grace and obtain grace and mercy in our time of need, and keep fighting the good fight of faith. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, and 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. When we live our Christian life in this way, we'll have confidence to exercise this authority. One of the greatest enemies to the Christian is sin consciousness. God's word builds within us a sense of righteousness, not of our own, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we're as holy and righteous we're going to be positionally as we're ever going to be for eternity, because heaven requires perfection. And if we're going to go to heaven, that means we have already been made perfect in our spirit. You see, it's our outward life. That's the part that needs a lot of work. We're under construction. And God is working in us through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus every day. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so you be its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, in the Amplified, Jesus personally bore our sins in his own body on the tree, 
as on an altar and offered himself on it, that we might die and cease to exist to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for by his bruisings we are healed. Jesus bore our sins and in the, his body on the tree, and he died because of those sins, absorbing in himself the entirety of God's wrath and Satan's curse. We were also identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. As a result, we do not have to die to sin again, since we already have through Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22, there is no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. When Jesus was made alive, we were made alive with him. In Christ, we have died to our sins. We died to the old, spiritual, sinful nature. We died to our diseases. We died to poverty. When Jesus arose, we were raised with him into the fullness of his resurrection, life, and power. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Jesus has set us free from the old sin nature freed us from the condemnation of our sins that we have or will ever commit. No more bondage, but glorious liberty. And we came to understand this. We learn that our old sin nature has no rights over us, has no dominion over us whatsoever to reign over us or to make us dead in sin. Just as the human corpse has no response to the things of this life, so we must learn to be dead to the passions of our flesh. In Romans chapter 13, verse 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We will not accept any imitation of unworthiness, guilt, shame, or condemnation that Satan may in our ignorance, impose upon us concerning past sins that are under the blood of Jesus and blotted from our account. Dear friends, we have been pardoned of all wrongdoing. We can stand innocent like a newborn babe before our Father God, the judge of the universe, through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation or condemning sentence to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has borne all of our past, present, and future sins, and as far as the East is from the West, we never need to carry them again. Neither do we need to suffer any condemnation for them. Jesus has already condemned and sentenced. He paid the penalty for all sin, paid it in full, so we don't have to. God amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Consider the charge God has given to Cain concerning sin, just before he had murdered his brother Abel. 
Through God's grace and the provisions of the new covenant, we are in a much greater position to master the sin nature in our body. Through our recreated and righteous spiritual nature, energized by the Holy Spirit, as we renew our minds and reprogram it with God's word, our thinking and believing will change. This in turn will change how we live our lives. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, So I tell you this, insist on in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Living a life of obedience to God's word is not easy, but by His grace and through our faith in His word, we are more than conquerors according to the Bible. The price we pay in living a holy life now places us in a unique position to be used mightily by God. If we will allow ourselves to be still dominated by the sin after we get saved, we will go on living in condemnation, fear, and weakness. The desire and passion to serve God and be a blessing to others will be gone. It's so worth it to live a consecrated and dedicated life for the Lord. The souls of multitudes lay in the balance concerning our decision in this matter. Jesus is our ultimate example of what obedience and surrender to God will produce. Unlike Jesus, we are not the Savior of mankind, but we are messengers and ambassadors to carry the message. With that calling of the Great Commission comes sacrifice, suffering persecution, and greatest of all, crucifying our selfish desires that are trying to hinder us from fulfilling all that God desires and destined for our lives. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Remember that we had talked about the key to Satan's dominion over humanity is our sins. Jesus came first as the Lamb, but he will return as a lion to make his spiritual kingdom a physical one for a thousand-year millennial rule. Jesus took our sins 
So we now have freedom today in this life to reign in as kings, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 17. In John 1, 29, I've shared this scripture a number of times, but it just bears repeating. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Seated together with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We were raised together with Christ. He was raised up by the glory of the Father when he had satisfied the claims of justice for our sins and had met our great enemy, Satan, and his army in the dark regions of hell and conquered them. He then was made alive in his spirit and the firstborn from among the dead. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Then he arose, we arose with him. He was raised up because God justified him, and he could not be held any longer by death and hell. When he was justified, we were justified in him. To all who are in Christ, Satan is a conquered foe. We are seated with Christ at the right hand of God in the highest place of the universe. Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God put everything under Jesus' feet. The church, every believer, this has already been done. Jesus is at the right hand of God, and so are we. The mightiest working of God took place when he raised Jesus up from the dead and seated him at his own right hand. God's will is that the eyes of the church would be opened to understand the powerful reality. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. God wants us to know that he has set Jesus above all the power of the enemy and raised us up as well. When Jesus was raised, we were raised and seated with him in heavenly places. The body and the head are one, so it affected Jesus and the church. When we think of a person, we don't think of their head as one thing and their body as something else. No, they are all one. What belongs to Jesus belongs to us. We share in his victory and authority. This is the life changing, folks, if we would just get a revelation of it. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in his death, then we also will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so you will obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. In the mind of God, we were raised with Jesus at His resurrection. When Jesus sat down, we sat down. That is where we are right now. The sitting of Jesus means that certain aspects of his work are done. The fullness is yet to come. Right now we are seated with Jesus, with all the authority given to him and to us, his body, the church. For what purpose? To carry out his works on the earth as his body. The will of God is done through us. By our faith, prayers, praise, and speaking the word in the name of Jesus, we are seated with Christ high above all the power of the enemy right now. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Jesus already overcame the devil for us, and we are to dominate him, not the other way around. If we don't exercise it and take advantage of it, the devil will overcome us. It's not automatic. We have to act on the word and the name of Jesus. Salvation belongs to all humanity, but if they don't accept it for themselves, it won't do them any good. Why doesn't salvation just automatically apply to them? They have a free will to choose, whether they want to accept it or reject it. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 states, My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. This is why God put teachers in the church, so that we can present revelation truth for believers to receive and enter into God's provision for their lives today. It's imperative that we find out what belongs to us and take advantage of it. Why? So we can become greedy, selfish children of God, like the rest of the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it folks? People that believe that are truly missing the whole idea here. It's about being blessed to be a blessing to others, to serve others with it. If a Christian is weak, poor, sick, that is a hindrance to fulfilling the Great Commission, right? Besides, God, as a loving Heavenly Father, never intends for His children to be oppressed and harassed by the devil. I'm not going to feel guilty for enjoying abundant life in Jesus while seeking first His kingdom in my life. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. You can't give what you haven't received. And we've received so much in Jesus. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Certainly, there are plenty of carnal Christians who tried to exploit the promises of God solely for their own benefit. For them, prosperity is a matter of greed. Healing for their lives fuels their self-seeking pursuits. We need to pray for them, that they see the bigger picture of God's mission to reach a lost and dying world. 
Just because a few bad examples are floating around out there doesn't mean I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Living a blessed life is a great witness to unbelievers of God's grace and of our lives now and for eternity. You know, the condition of the sheep is a reflection on the shepherd. Jesus is a good shepherd, and he came that we may have life and have it more abundantly and live a good life. And that is very appealing to the world because they want God's love and care for them also. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If we don't know what belongs to us, we can't experience it. Even if we know it, but we do not act on it, even though it's ours, it still won't do us any good. Let us rise up and act on God's word for our lives. The trouble is we have not, we have not found out who we are in Christ. In Psalms 119 verse 130, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Please do not misunderstand what I'm about to say. Please stay open-minded to the concept I'm about to share. I believe the church has had too much emphasis on the cross of Jesus instead of the throne that Jesus sits on right now. As a consequence, the church does not understand the power of the resurrection like they should. We have sung, Lord, keep me near the cross. No, we don't want to stay near the cross. Some folks only preach a cross religion. This is a religion of death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, But if we preach that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some who say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we have been found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him from the dead, if in fact the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Don't misunderstand me, we have to go by the cross, but don't stop there. Go by the empty tomb and the resurrection, but you know, don't stop there either. Go by the day of Pentecost, but don't stop there. We must dive into the reality of the epistles in the Bible of who we are in Christ which is where we are today in Christ Jesus, seated with him at the right hand of the Father. We will never live a successful Christian life until we learn to live in the epistles, the letters written to the churches. It's absolute truth. Teach the cross, but major on the resurrection, Pentecost, and the epistles. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The concept of a cross religion has actually become an idol for many religious folks. When only one side of redemption is taught, the cross, which is only part of it, but not the whole story, 
We have sung, keep me near the cross, and we are thinking that we're staying near God by staying near the cross. The cross was a symbol of death, defeat, a place of execution, shame, and humiliation. Certainly, go by the cross, but don't stay there. Don't camp there. Go on to Pentecost and get filled with the Spirit, but don't stay there. Come up into the epistles and find out that we've been raised together with Jesus and are presently seated with him at the right hand of the Father. This is what we will give us victory, not keeping us near the cross. Now, here's a powerful scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So we, here we see through the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, that the emphasis should be on the resurrection over the cross. I might as well go on and expose other, other religious traditions that I believe have hindered the body of Christ. There is too much death being preached. Some have said, well, I need to die to self. No, we don't need to die to self if we're already born again. Our old spiritual nature has already been crucified with Christ. We don't want the new creation to die. We want it to flourish and take the ascendancy in our life. What we need to do, according to the Bible, is crucify the sinful nature that's resident in our physical bodies by the renewing of our minds with God's word. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. We can't let our body dominate us. It's not redeemed yet. Thankfully, we will get a new body. Until then, we need to bring it under subjection and offer it unto God as a living sacrifice. It's not a sin for our body to want to do wrong. It's a sin when we let it have what it wants, when it violates God's word. We have to bring it under subjection. That is not God's job, but the Holy Spirit will help us. It's only to be done by God's grace through faith, our faith in his word. God won't take our bad habits. We have to cut them off and cut them out of our lives. When we read Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 50, Jesus is addressing the awfulness of sin, that it's not worth hanging onto at the expense of losing our soul. When we consider the trauma afflicted upon an individual who has cut off their hand, foot, or plucked out an eye, is nothing compared to the horrors of the lake of fire for all eternity, which is the second death. In Mark chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus said, And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with each other. Baptize into the name of Jesus. The Greek word baptism means to submerge, immerse, to make overwhelmed, fully wet. 
I would like to briefly mention right now four different kinds of baptisms and to go into greater detail on the first baptism that is Christians undertake. In Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting we will do so. Being baptized into Christ, the first baptism occurred when we confessed Jesus as our Lord and Savior and were born again. We were put into or immersed into the body of Christ according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. This is the one and only baptism that saves us. It was when we were connected to the body of Christ and became one spirit with our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. When we were born again, we were baptized, immersed, and put into the body of Christ. Then there's water baptism. Water baptism is the symbolic expression, testimony, and declaration of what had already taken place, coming into union with Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Water baptism should be performed in a body of water that is deep enough for the individual to be completely immersed and covered, since that is what the word means. Just prior to being immersed underwater, there is typically a statement of faith that one makes while they're being baptized in water. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, verse 48, So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Bible makes it plain that water baptism does not save us, but is a powerful outward demonstration of an inward work that has already happened when we confess Jesus as Lord. It is a powerful proclamation to heaven, earth, and hell that we have decided to follow Jesus. You see, it's no longer a secret. We are letting everyone know our allegiance, love, and devotion to Jesus. It's a total committal. No going back to the old life in the world. It's a decision that Jesus is our Lord, and we will follow him all the days of our life. We are drawing a line in the sand that Jesus is Lord and Master over our lives forever. Then the next baptism is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is the third baptism, and is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. Though the Bible has much to say on this subject, it's amazing to me how many Christians have been duped out of receiving this indescribable power that Jesus commanded us to have in order to fulfill the Great Commission in God's power instead of our own. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, 
But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Speaking with other tongues would be done through his name as a sign of being a believer in him. We see that in Mark chapter 16, verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They'll place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Then the fourth one is the baptism of suffering. This is the fourth baptism. It's not available to all. It is brought up by Jesus when James and John asked to sit at his left and right throne in the millennium. Jesus had asked them if they were able to undergo the baptism that he would be baptized with. This was the baptism of suffering martyrdom for the gospel. All the disciples of the Lamb were martyrs except for John, who was the only one who died a natural old age. Paul was certainly baptized in this baptism. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or the left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom it has been prepared. Let's go back to the first and most important of all baptisms. That is when we are baptized into Christ. When an individual confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are immediately baptized into Jesus Christ and placed into his body. The Greek word for baptism is immersion, to be completely covered. Being baptized into Jesus Christ has a threefold meaning. First, it is the death and burial of the past. Second, it is the resurrection into a new relationship. Third, it is a union with the one in whose name we have been baptized into. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's consider the bride of Christ. When one is baptized into Christ, in one sense it is equivalent to marriage. The scriptures make this connection between Jesus and his church. Jesus is the groom, and collectively as believers, we are his bride. When the wife enters into marriage, she takes her husband's name and partakes of her husband's possessions and has legal rights in his home, identified with him in all that he has or ever will be. So when the believer is baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, he puts on the name of the Lord Jesus. He not only puts on his name as a Christian, but he takes his legal 
rights, and privileges in Christ. We are baptized into all the name stands for, all its wealth, all its honor, all its power, all its past, present, and future glory. Acts chapter 11 verse 26 says that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Revelation chapter 19 verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give God glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then there's the body of Christ. The incredible reality of being connected and joined to Jesus as members of his body is a profound truth in the scriptures. This revelation is significant in understanding the authority of the believer. Your head does not go by one name and your body goes by another. So the body of Christ is Christ from head to toe. Jesus is the head and we are his body. We are one in spirit with him. We read in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? 
Should I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Obviously, the scriptures put Jesus as the head of his own body. He exerts executive leadership over his own body, the church. Jesus is called the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus has set those into five-fold ministry offices to exercise leadership and ministry for the purpose of training believers to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Even the observance of communion or the Lord's Supper, is among other things a unifying practice for believers to participate in, reminding us of the fact that we are one body, members in particular. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, and we, who are many, are one body for we all partake of the one loaf. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Just as our physical head needs the body to carry out our will, desire, and authority, so it is with Jesus and his church. Due to religious traditions of men, Jesus has been hindered in the earth from doing all he wants to do. I thought Jesus is sovereign. Well, yes, he is. He sovereignly made it this way, that he depends on and works through his body in the earth to carry out his will. If we aren't obedient, it hinders the plan of God. There's an old saying, when good men fail to act, evil prevails. From a Christian perspective, it could be this way as well. When the church does not pray and exercise her authority in the earth through the name of Jesus, the devil is allowed to kill, steal, and destroy more. Let's start saying what the Bible says about us and work with the Lord as co-laborers with him. The head carries out his will through his body. The body has the same authority as the head does, because they are one. We are one in spirit with the Lord, as Christians anointed with the same Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18 in the Amplified. Truly, I tell you, whatever you forbid and declare to be improper and unlawful on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit and declare proper and lawful on earth must be what is already permitted in heaven. Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree, harmonize together, make a symphony together about whatever, anything and everything they may ask, It will come to pass and be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered, drawn together as my followers, in and into my name, there I am in the midst of them. When we were baptized into the name of the Father, it gives us the place of a child of God. This includes all the privileges, all the inheritance and wealth of a child of God. 
We are baptized into the protective care and fellowship of the, of the God of the universe as our Father. We are cutting ties and turning our backs to the world and from the old life and surrendering ourselves into a new life, identification, position, and spiritual nature. We have the standing of a son, the privilege of a son, the responsibilities and duties of a son. We have become all this by this baptism into Christ at the new birth, a joint heir with Jesus and an heir of God. We have entered into the wealth of an inheritance given us by the God of the universe. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we shared in his sufferings in order that we may share also in his glory. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, God made you alive with Christ. Verse 20, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. And in verse 3, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The glorious fact of our identification with Christ is one of the highest, richest facts in the whole plan of redemption. We were crucified with Christ. We were nailed to the cross with him in the mind of God. As he was stripped naked and hung there in his shame and disgrace, so were we. For we took our place on the cross. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. We died with Christ as he died. As he died to sin, so we died to sin. As he died to Satan's rule, so we died to it. As he died to sickness and disease, we died. We were buried with him, and he went down into that place of suffering and paid the penalty for our sins and the union we had with Satan. As he put off from himself the forces of darkness and sin, the sickness and disease of mankind, and we put them off in him. We left them there. When he died, he carried all my sins, sickness, diseases, poverty, fear, oppression, and my old sinful spiritual nature far away, never to return again. He rose from the dead, having crushed all these things, having separated them from us for all eternity. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, in the Amplified, Surely he has borne our griefs, sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses, and carried our sorrows and pains of punishment. Yet we ignorantly consider him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God as if with leprosy. That's also referred to in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. First Peter 2.24 in the Amplified. Jesus personally bore our sins in his own body on the tree, as on an altar, and offered himself on it that we might die, cease to exist to sin, and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Romans chapter 5 verse 6, you see at just the right time when we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since Jesus carried all forms of sin and death, 
I don't have to carry them anymore. If I do allow these things to dominate my life, then what Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection for me was done in vain. All of this is already ours in redemption. We don't have to ask for it. It's already ours. All we need to do is praise him for it, and when we praise him and thank him for it, then the reality of it becomes operative in our life. I take possession and appropriate my redemptive rights through my confession of God's word on the matter. So now I stand before God and the angels, yes, and before Satan, clothed in Christ, hidden in Christ, and wrapped in Christ, according to Romans chapter 13, verse 14. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, As he is, so are we in this world. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so in everything he might have the supremacy. Identified with him in suffering persecution and shame and in glory. Romans chapter 8 verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Colossians chapter 3 verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We are so fully identified and so completely at one with him that it can no longer be we that live, but he that lives his life in and through us. His wisdom is to take the place of our ignorance. His strength is to take the place of our weakness. His victories are to take the place of our failures. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Now that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. When we were baptized into Jesus, we were baptized into his name, wealth, power, wisdom, and glory of God. As his representatives on the earth, all Jesus has accomplished, we are baptized into. We have become a fellowshipper of his grace, his tenderness, his wisdom, his ability, his power, his life. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and purpose. The entire plan of redemption is summed up in this wonderful word, fellowship. For what would redemption and a new creation mean if he had no fellowship with his children? 
The secrets of the Lord are with those who are in fellowship with Him. The reason why believers are unable to get into the Word and enjoy the fruit and privileges in Christ is because their fellowship is either broken or they have very superficial form of fellowship. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. The happiness of the home is in the fellowship between the members of that household. The real fruit is fellowship. We will never see divine love in the divorce court. There should never be a divorce if fellowship had not been broken by the husband and wife. When fellowship is broken, they simply endure each other. The desire for fellowship is the reason for marriage, and the joy of fellowship is a wonderful fruit of marriage. When one is born again and becomes a new creation, the greatest joy that the Spirit has ever known comes from his or her fellowship with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes to sells all that he has and buys that field. Romans chapter 5, verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When fellowship is broken with the Lord because of sin, we do not cease to be a child of God. Our relationship is intact. It's just that our fellowship has been severed. Now there is sin that does lead to death, but that is beyond the scope of this study. 1 John chapter 5 verse 16, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4, and Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26, and 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 20 goes into that part more in detail. Broken fellowship is usually the culprit behind a loss of appetite for the word, prayer, and praise. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. There's a big difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is when one experiences favorable circumstances. The world provides a temporary state of happiness. Joy, on the other hand, is supernatural. It comes from God alone and fills us with life, strength, endurance, and vigor no matter what the circumstances. It is a fruit of our recreated human spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The key is to be quick to forgive, quick to repent, and quick to obey God's word. In this way, we stay under the blood and protection of God. We always want to be in a position to use the name of Jesus at all times. A believer living in sin and broken fellowship due to unrepentant sin is the most miserable person on earth. This is because our own spirit will be grieved and saddened when we sin. If a believer persists in that state of being backslidden from God, there is a real danger that his or her heart will become hardened to sin, even to the point where it does not bother them anymore. That is a very dangerous and risky place to be spiritually. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. For believers, when they sin, their own heart will condemn them. 
No, the Holy Spirit does not convict the believer of sin. There is no scripture for that. In John chapter 16, verse 5, you will see that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, singular, and not of sins, plural. The singular sin of not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. When the believer sins, all they have to do is confess it to God and ask for forgiveness. The same blood of Jesus that remitted us of sin and the spiritual sin nature at the time we were born again is the same blood that cleanses us of all sin that is committed during our Christian walk. This is referred to in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. The blood of Jesus has the same effect on our sin, blots it out, removes it, takes it away, eradicates it, and disintegrates it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us, no longer to be charged against us. In Psalms 103, verse 12. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, talking to Christians, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. The moment we confess our sins, Jesus is right there as our advocate to silence the accusations of the devil and restore our broken fellowship. Jesus is our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. In Romans chapter 8, verse 33, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, but more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those who trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So when we are baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, all that the name stands for in heaven is ours. All the mighty victories that Jesus won in his death, burial, and resurrection are ours. This is what it means to be baptized into the glorious Godhead as stated in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Spiritually, it means this, if it means anything else, that we are baptized into all that the name means in the plan of redemption. We are baptized into the finished 
work of Jesus Christ. That's why the scriptures call us more than a conqueror, because Jesus conquered for us and we enter into that victory through faith in his name. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Of his fullness we have all received, and in him we are full and complete. All the grace that was manifest in Christ and wraps us and folds us, and we are in it. All the perfections and beauties in the character and the life of Jesus Christ are ours. Colossians chapter 2 verse 10, you are complete in him. John chapter 1 verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. 1 John chapter 2 verse 5, But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is made complete in him. 1 John chapter 4 verse 12, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. When we confess Jesus as our Lord, we take on his name as Christians. The word Christ means anointed, anointed one. So as Christians, we are anointed followers of Jesus Christ, identified as belonging to him. Think of the responsibility attached to it. Think of the glories enwrapped in it. Think of the blessings that occur from it. To be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ and the putting on of Christ Bearing the name of Jesus is the greatest honor that heaven can confer upon a human being. The Lord lifts us up and enables us by His grace to enter into our inheritance and to assume our responsibilities in His wonderful family. Jesus won no victory and He won no triumph in His substitutionary work that was not for the benefit of His church, His body. His righteousness is ours. His love is ours. All the graces that adorned his beautiful life are ours. When we put on Christ in baptism, we are by his grace able to enjoy all the power of God in our lives. As believers, all these riches, all these graces are ours. By faith, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, all the wealth and riches of Christ Jesus become ours positionally. We stand clothed in the rights, privileges, and powers of the Son of God. All that the name stands for in heaven is ours. All the mighty victories he won in his death, suffering, and conquest in hell, and his resurrection are ours. Jesus did all this for our benefit. He had done nothing to prove but for mankind to be saved, redeemed and restored back to the original position of glory in God, God's presence as it was in the beginning. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27, chapter 2 verse 2, Let's meditate on these truths until they become a reality in our lives. The Courtroom of Heaven Jesus is our advocate, our go-between. 1 John 2, verse 1, in the King James Version, uses the word advocate, while the NIV provides an explanation as to what that word means. One who speaks to the Father in our defense. The Ancient of Days sits as the ultimate judge of the universe. I love this passage in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. 
The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. When God issues judgment, he allows the devil to issue out the punishment, the curse of breaking God's law. Satan is the manifestation of the curse of the law, and is the dealer of death, the death angel in Egypt that had killed the firstborn. Concerning Job, in the original Hebrew language, when God said to the devil in Job chapter 1 verse 8, I see that you have set your attention upon my servant Job. Contrary to popular belief, God was not dangling Job out to the devil to take a bite. Satan was upset concerning Job being a righteous, rich man of power and influence for God. It chafed him. Let's look at how the affairs of mankind are played out in the court of heaven in the spiritual realm. First, we will examine some legal terms in the Bible. The first one is advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 in the New King James Version, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The next term is intercessor. Intercessor is a legal term describing a lawyer pleading to the judge on behalf of his client. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Another term is mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Justified. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Righteous. Romans chapter 3 verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. How about the word pardon? Notice that one translation uses forgive and the other uses pardon. They can be interchangeable. Like the word remitted, in conjunction with sin, it means our sins are blotted out, erased, terminated, so that nothing remains. No remainder of past sins. This is what the blood of Jesus does. When a criminal is pardoned legally, they are reinstated into society as though they had done nothing wrong. It's as though they never committed the crime in the first place. Psalms chapter 25 verse 11. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. When the New King James Version, that same verse, states, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Another legal term is condemned. Matthew chapter 12, verse 37. 
For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. These words, advocate, intercession, mediator, justified, righteous, pardoned, condemned, are all legal terms, and they are used in connection with our redemption. God did everything by the book. He is the judge of the universe, and he follows his own spiritual laws. In Psalms 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. God passes judgments that do not please him. As much as God loves us, he will not pervert his justice on our behalf, nor will he let us off the hook without justice being served. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their evil ways and live? Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 10, Son of man, say to the house of Israel, This is what you are saying. Our offenses, our sins, weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Suppose a judge has his only son brought before him in regards to a grievous crime that has been committed. The son takes the stand and pleads guilty to the crime. What can his father do? If he really loves him and is just, what is left for him to do? The son confessed to the crime. According to the law, the father must declare him guilty and pronounce judgment, sentence him with the appropriate punishment. Even though it rips his heart, if the judge does not do his job and condemn his son, he is an unjust judge, partial and unfit for office. I want you to understand as believers on the Lord Jesus Christ, If we do not judge ourselves and do what God tells us to do in order to keep from being judged, he has no option but to find us guilty and judge us, which allows the devil access to us. This is not talking about our salvation or the sins Jesus paid for 2,000 years ago. I am making reference to the here and now in our daily Christian life. If we get over into the area of unrepentant sin, We open the door to the devil to come into our lives to kill, steal, and destroy. Our free will needs to be quick to forgive, quick to repent, in order to keep the door shut. It's our job to keep the devil out of our lives, not God's. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29. If anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself... This is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Talking about physical death. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so we will not be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. 
Whether you realize it or not, you have someone who is against you, the devil or adversary. He is continually trying to build a case against you before the throne so so as to get you to be judged and turned over to him so that he can have access to your life. He follows you around night and day and brings thoughts to your mind and feelings to your body in order to bait and provoke you to sin. For what cause? To gather evidence, something he can use against you in court. The only power Satan has over people is through sin. When you remove the sin, Satan's power to afflict and oppress people is taken away. That is why when Jesus came, the greatest act of spiritual warfare against the devil was in paying the penalty for our sins. This left Satan without any legal claim to our lives to kill, steal, and destroy. In John chapter 1, verse 29, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The devil's imps will follow you around with tape recorders, so to speak. And I want you to know that anything you say can and will be used against you in a high court of heaven. You have an adversary, and he is shrewder, craftier, more sharper, and cunning than any prosecuting attorney you have ever seen or heard of. He has been building cases against human beings for century after century, and he's very proficient at it. He knows what buttons to push, what levers to pull. He knows what to bring to you to get you to talk and to say or do the wrong thing so as to have a case against you in order to get you judged and turned over to him. I also want you to know, as a Christian, you are not without a defense. There has never been an attorney for the defense like this one, Jesus Christ. People talk about the best lawyers that money can buy. Jesus far exceeds them all, and it won't cost you a dime to have him on your defense. Jesus, our attorney, has never lost a case, never. However, he's had many that would not work with him and call on him to be the representative before the throne of God, the judge of the universe. They opted instead to represent themselves and, as a consequence, lost their own case. When the devil is trying to mess with your life, put sickness on you, and ruin you financially, and oppress you with all kinds of trials, tests, and temptations, Jesus is right there to give you legal counsel through the Word of God. The Bible is a legal book. It is God's will, word, and law of the covenant. When you take the witness stand, Jesus wants you to study the Word, and that is all you are to say. Stick to the counsel of God's Word. Don't add to it or deviate from it. It does not matter what the circumstances look like, what you feel, what other people are saying, or what the devil is whispering into your ear about how you are going to fail and not make it. Jesus is telling you, only let the word come out of your mouth. It is written, like Jesus did when he was tempted according to Luke chapter 4. Jesus, your advocate, will tell you whatever happens, hold fast to the confession of God's word. The Bible is your testimony. Just speak the word. 
When you sit upon the witness stand and the devil comes up to cross-examine you, to pressure you, just stay cool and stand fast to your testimony of what God has given you in the word and what it says about you in light of redemption and all that Jesus has done on your behalf. How does God see you? Well, he sees you innocent, not guilty, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us as Christians are on the witness stand every day of our life. What comes out of our mouths will determine the outcome, whether we side with Jesus and the word or concede to the devil and his false accusations. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4, in the Amplified, Inasmuch then as we have a great high priest who has already ascended and passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith in him. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 in the Amplified, So let us seize and hold fast and retain without wavering the hope we cherish and confess and our acknowledgement of it. For he who promised is reliable, sure, and faithful to his word. The devil will come and as slick as he is will say, Now you love the Lord, don't you? Committed to the Lord because of all he has done for you? But isn't it true when the Lord has done so much for you, how miserably you have failed him? Isn't it true that you told him you were going to do something for him and you didn't keep your commitment? Next, the devil will play a video for the court and replay what had happened and how you broke your promise. He will rewind it and play it again a few times just to drive the point home. What the devil wants to do is to get you to break under pressure and use examples in an attempt to pour out condemnation in order to convince you of how unworthy you are. This will keep on until you begin to cave into the pressure and whine and cry and give in and speak those fateful words like, I know, I'm just a sorry Christian, a failure. I will never get this thing right in my life. In so doing, you have condemned yourself and pleaded guilty through an admission of defeat. The devil will say, because of your many failures and sins, you deserve to be sick. You deserve to be poor, don't you? And we have all been guilty of responding. Yes, I know I do. How can God love me? I mess up so many times. I don't deserve for God to heal me and bless me in my life and listen to my prayers. Then the devil looks up and says, Your Honor, I rest my case. Unfortunately, your Father God has no option since you have pleaded guilty, said you deserved it, or accepted it in your life as a trial to keep you humble and repentant. God has no option than to bang the gavel and proclaim you guilty according to your own testimony to allow your own words to be fulfilled and allow the enemy access to you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 29, Jesus said, According to your faith will be done unto you. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus said, For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Anything you say on this earth can and will be used against you by the accuser of the brethren, the devil. The good news is, If you will do what your advocate tells you to do and follow his counsel and his word, you will win the case every time. So just stay cool. So what does the Bible say about your sins anyways? Well, 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Psalms 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So just stay cool in Christ and maintain your confession of God's word. In light of the blood of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, as a believer, when you confess your sins according to 1 John 1, 9, are you still guilty of them? No, you're innocent. Are you still condemned and unworthy? Jesus made us worthy, holy, and perfect in his righteousness before God for all eternity through his blood. I did not earn this standing with God by my own works, but through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you deserve healing or to be whipped with sickness? Do you deserve to be punished or to be set free? Do you deserve condemnation or to be filled with joy and peace? In Jesus, we have been justified. So we deserve his life and that more abundantly, not death, all by his amazing grace. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ once and for all. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation, no condemning sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the sinful nature in our bodies, but according to the Holy Spirit. So when the devil pressures you to confess that you deserve to be punished, plead the blood of Jesus. Confess that you are innocent in Christ, innocent to all charges and accusations of the devil. This is how we overcome him according to Revelation chapter 12 verse 9. Standing on the blood of the Lord Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. But that is not all or enough to ensure your freedom. The second part is the word of your testimony. That is all Jesus has to work with on our case. What should our testimony be? Speak what the Bible has already declared concerning your situation. You are righteous, holy, justified, and sanctified in Jesus. Let the devil spew out all kinds of accusations about your life. Just plead the blood, and that makes you innocent. The devil can't touch or harm you. Praise God. 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Like what it says in chapter 5, verse 18 in the Amplified, We know absolutely that anyone born of God does not deliberately and knowingly practice committing sin. But the one who was begotten of God carefully watches over and protects him. Christ's divine presence within him preserves him against the evil. And the wicked one does not lay a hold 
or get a grip of him or touch him. However, when you claim your innocence, the devil will be right there and say, well, you rascal you. I have proof that you sinned and messed up. Then you will pull for that video of those past wrongs and find his blank. The blood of Jesus erased it. Desperate, the devil searches for some pictures and cassette tapes or videotapes, depending on what era you're talking about, but they are blank as well. No evidence. You look back at the devil and say, what video? I don't see anything. I told you I'm innocent. I plead the blood of Jesus. I don't plead guilty. I am holding on to my testimony of the truth that is in God's word. The devil will keep trying and, and try to get you to contradict the Bible and speak what you see, feel, and hear instead of siding with the revelation truth. But if you stand your ground and hold fast to your confession of faith, God the Father will say to the devil, that's enough. Give up. You have no case against my child. Then the advocate, Jesus, will step forward and say, your honor, my father, The accused, my brother, your son, has testified that he is innocent of all charges, that he deserves no punishment, no sickness or death. I submit for the court's consideration, Exhibit A, my blood on the mercy seat in heaven, and my blood is speaking some wonderful things. My blood is speaking innocent, sins paid in full. No guilt, no shame, and no oppression from the enemy is allowed. The Father God will smile and say, the court has accepted that evidence. Next, your, ed- your advocate will say, You have heard the accused, my brother, your son, testify that he does not deserve to be sick, and that by my stripes he is healed. I present before the court for its consideration Exhibit B, the stripes upon my back. The Father God will smile and say, The court has accepted that evidence long ago. Finally, Jesus will say, I submit that all charges against this one be dropped. He is innocent and that no judgment from the devil come against him, and no access be allowed to the destroyer to him. The father will then bang his gavel and proclaim, This case is closed. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 in the New King James Version. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Jesus is continually interceding, legally pleading our case, but he has to have something to work with. The word of our testimony is critical. How many of you know if you stand in any court of law and confess that you are as guilty as sin and deserve to be punished, no matter how good your defense attorney is, there is nothing left than to be sentenced and receive your punishment? Another way the devil gains entrance in your life is to deceive you into accepting sickness, poverty, depression, or other forms of satanic oppression. How does he do that, you may ask? Through religious traditions. That the curse is sent from God or allowed by God to teach you something or to keep you humble. In either case, as much as Jesus wants to deliver you, he can't because of wrong religious thinking or loose lips to concede defeat and guilt. Remember, Satan is trying to get you condemned and judged so he can have access to you. He must get the permission, seeks whom he may devour. If you agree with his lies and plead guilty, yes, I am sick, 
Yes, this trial is from God to teach me something. I accept it. There is nothing Jesus can do for you. So God has to allow the devil access to your life to kill, steal, and destroy you. But if you stick to the Bible, the devil has no evidence and no basis for judgment against you, so you go free. The Father will bang the gavel and proclaim innocent. All charges against you are dropped. The Father will throw the case out of court because the devil has nothing on you because the blood of Jesus covered all the evidence and erased it all. The devil will stomp out, but he can't touch you because you are innocent and you agree to stand by your innocence in the blood of Jesus by making the truth of God's word your own personal testimony. This is how the truth makes us free, by personally identifying with it and making it our very own. The devil can't touch you because he could not get you into judgment made against you. This is what happens to believers every day of their lives on this earth. The sooner we understand this legal process in the spiritual realm, the sooner we can get into experiencing the reality of God's victory personalized in our lives for us to enjoy. Psalms chapter 23 verse 5 in the Amplified, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup is running over, brimming over. John chapter 10 verse 10 in the Amplified, The thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may enjoy life and have it in abundance, to the full, till it overflows. With all this said, what are we going to do? Stay cool and stand on God's word, and only speak out of your mouth the testimony of God's word concerning who you are in Christ Jesus. If that is the case, only the word as our testimony, nothing more, nothing less, we will win every case against the devil with Jesus as our great advocate and the blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. I trust that this episode blessed and enriched your life greatly. Having a personal revelation of our glorious redemption in Jesus Christ is the key to understanding the authority of the believer. Knowing the power of the blood that washes away our sin and leaves the devil with no case against us. Remember that Jesus is our advocate before the Father. We just need to plead the blood and stand on God's word as our final authority and will win in court every time. The next episode is on the name of Jesus. I hope you will join us. Till then, God bless. I highly encourage you to continue listening to the Word of Life Study Series podcast and encourage your friends to tune in as well. The scriptures encourage us in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 to receive the message with great eagerness and to examine the scriptures every day in order to confirm the truth that you're hearing. God's word is our final authority for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. I'd like to close this episode by praying over you according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, 
but also in the one to come. And in chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Be blessed and see you soon.